Okay, no sermon bumper tonight, so here we are. It's good to see you. How is everybody? Good, good, good. Like Pastor Brett said, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor of New Life East, and I'm grateful to be here tonight. This is a Palm Sunday weekend. Christians around the world are celebrating Palm Sunday. And so I'm going to uh, do a message out of the book of Zechariah. I know that Pastor Daniel preached Zechariah a couple weeks ago. But Zechariah has 14 chapters. There's a lot there, okay? So we're going to talk Zechariah and also... Zechariah is one of the minor prophets who actually spends time talking about the coming of the Messiah, which we'll get to towards the end of the message tonight. Zechariah, you might remember, if you remember Pastor Daniel's uh, message, the people of God were hauled into exile by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And several decades later, a man by the name of Cyrus, the Persian king, allowed the Jews to go home to their homeland, Jerusalem, And they began to rebuild the temple and the city to reboot their life. And so as they're rebuilding things, putting things back together, there were a number of prophets that were called alongside the people to help them and to encourage them. And Zechariah is one of those prophets. He prophesies towards the latter part of the 6th century B.C., really to encourage the people of God. And also, if you've ever read the book of Zechariah, he's trying to push them beyond their present frame of reference to get them to see God and God's world, which are always present, but they're veiled to our senses most of the time. Zechariah's name uh, comes from the Hebrew root zachar, which means to remember. And so together it means that Yahweh remembers. And what we're going to see as we look at these texts is that Yahweh really does remember the promises that he has made. And those promises are pretty glorious promises. Let's pause here and now. And welcome the work of the Spirit into our lives afresh. Let's acknowledge the presence of Jesus in this moment. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Father, we thank you that you are the one that we sang about just a little bit ago. You are our living hope, as the Apostle Peter said. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who are sealed by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time, and in this you greatly rejoice. We thank you that the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is sealing us now in this moment that you've tucked us away safely in your purposes and that you are carrying us through to a glorious completion, a glorious destiny, a final end in the new heavens and a new earth in which sin and death and sorrow will be no more. That's our destiny. That's our hope. And we're very grateful for it. We are very grateful for the fact also that you are present among us tonight Maybe it's hard for some of us in this room to see your presence or to sense your presence, but we know that you are here. The book of Revelation says, Revelation 20 and verse 11, then I saw a great white throne with him who was seated on it and earth and sky fled from his presence, but there was nowhere for them to go. There is nowhere for us to go from your presence and there's no need for us to go anywhere. We're safe with you and we're grateful for that. We ask that tonight as we open the ancient words of the prophet Zechariah, that you would speak to us. We ask you, living word, tonight, 
that you would take these words and make them your living word to us in a way that shatters us and renews us in the inner parts of our being, that makes us more fully your people. Grant us, we're asking, we say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all of God's people in the house and worshiping with us online said, Amen. Amen. Zechariah chapter one, starting in verse 12, Zechariah has been in a conversation here with an angel of the Lord and all of a sudden while he's in the middle of this conversation with the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord turns to God now and starts speaking to God. So verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, How long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with for these 70 years? Now, remember, you might remember if you've read the book of Jeremiah, that Jeremiah prophesied that the exile would last 70 years or so. And when you actually tally it up, it really did. The Babylonians started sweeping through the northern kingdom of Israel, or what remained of it anyway, and into the southern kingdom of Judah in the late, uh, in the early part rather of the sixth century BC. And it wasn't until we get to that latter part of the sixth century BC that all of a sudden this renewal starts to take place. So it's been about 70 years, but the angel now is saying, how long are you going to withhold mercy? Everybody say withhold mercy from the, from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, Judah, which you've been angry with for these 70 years. And so the Lord spoke, I love this, The Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. And we're not really privy to that conversation necessarily, but we know that the Lord speaks comfort to the angel, and that comfort is going to come to Zechariah. And then the angel who was speaking to me said, proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I'm very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only A little bit angry, but they went too far with the punishment. And therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim this further, that this is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, thanks be... To God, thanks be to God. Zechariah is prophesying during the time when they are back in the city, okay? They're back. But they're back in the land. They're back in the city. They've rebuilt a lot of the walls. We read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. And they've been rebuilding the temple. And yet the thing that you have to realize, and so, but what he starts doing and what he sees in this conversation with the angel is that there's a sense still in which they're almost under the wrath of God. It feels like, The exile, the horrible situation of exile is still continuing for the people of God. And there's a reason for that. The reason for it is that even though at this point when Zechariah is prophesying, they're pretty close to being finished with the temple. Well, as they look at the temple, it doesn't look anything like they thought it was going to look. Okay. And many of them had heard the stories and the songs about how the temple looked under Solomon. You might remember if you remember your Old Testament history, that under Solomon, the temple was amazing. It's like one of the wonders of the world, you know, beautiful columns covered with gold. Everything, when you read about it in the Old Testament, everything in the temple was covered with gold and there was blue and purple and scarlet yarn everywhere. I mean, it was like, it was, it was a wonder to behold. It would have taken your breath away. And now they're back in the land and they're rebuilding the temple. And to most Jews of this period, when they thought about this temple that had been, been rebuilt, well, it just seemed like a shack to them. Like, you're telling me that this 
dump this like glorified backyard shed that we got from Home Depot, you know? This is the glorious place where God is gonna dwell. And they knew all of the prophecies. In fact, so many of the minor prophets and the major prophets prophesied that when the great return to Zion happened, also the mountain of the Lord's temple would be established as chief among the hills, right? And that all the nations would stream to it. They had this idea in their minds of what the temple was going to look like when it got rebuilt. And now they're really close to having it rebuilt. And it just felt like a little shed that it left a little something to be desired. And it's into that situation of disappointment with the state of affairs that they were in the middle of that God begins to speak to them and says to them that I'm jealous for Jerusalem, I am jealous for Zion, and I'm going to return to Jerusalem with mercy and there my house will be rebuilt. Into that situation of disappointment and feeling like what they had put together For the dwelling place of God was less than what it should have been. God begins to promise something glorious to them. This promise also is reflected in the book of Haggai, who's Zechariah's contemporary. They prophesy into the same situation and about the same time. And listen to what Haggai says, the Lord speaking on the lips of Haggai. He says, who of you is here that's here is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. And this is what I covenanted with you when I came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you, so don't fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake. Oh, come on now. In a little while, the Lord says, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and what is desired by all the nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. And the glory of the present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace. Do you hear what God is saying? That you've done the work that I've asked you to do and my spirit has been with you in that process and you've put this space together. And I know that right now it doesn't seem like a lot to you, but here is my promise to you that if you do the work that I've asked you to do this thing, I will fill this house with glory. That which is desired by all the nations will come. I'll shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the land. And this place, the glory of this house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And shalom will land in this place. Everything being ordered the way that God intends. And from this place, shalom will spread to the heavens and the earth. You do your part. I will do my part. Zechariah and Haggai both remind us that our call, brothers and sisters, is to make a space for God in the world and that God's promise is that he'll fill it with his presence. And it doesn't have to be spectacular. It doesn't have to blow your hair back. It does not have to be amazing. Our call is to create a space for God. And God's promise is that he'll take that space however he finds it and however we hand it to him and he'll go and he'll fill it with his presence. That's the promise of the scriptures. 
I remember being in high school. I uh, had the good pleasure when I was in high school of being part of a group of high schoolers, kids, friends who had hearts for God, hungry for the Lord. And we did all the normal stuff that high schoolers do. We hung out and, you know, went to each other's houses and hung out at, I'm from Marshfield, Wisconsin. It's a little town of 18,000 people. So like the wildest thing that you could do in Marshfield was stay at Perkins until two in the morning, Perkins family restaurant, eating bread bowls and dipping in a ranch. And that was like, that's what we do. We're good kids, you know. And remember my friend, Ben, Ben Wantes, his parents, Terry and Bonnie, bought a piece of land outside of the city a uh, nice little piece of property and they built this gorgeous house out there and they always, they hosted the best hangouts like at their house. And so on Friday nights or Saturday nights, whenever we would go over to their house and they were so hospitable to us. And we'd have a group of 12, 13, 14, 15 kids over there. And Bonnie was like this amazing homemaker, cook lady. And so she'd make us this delicious food and these chocolate chip cookies, you know, when you're in high school, isn't that like, do you remember how amazing that was? How you could eat like 30 chocolate chip cookies? And somehow the Lord was just forgiving and it didn't do anything. It was like glorious, you know, and we'd eat all these cookies and watch movies and so great. It was just an amazing time together. And they had this little den set up and Terry, Terry Wanta, Terry was a guitarist and he had a number of guitars kind of hanging on the walls. And one of my friends, my friend Michael, was an emerging uh, worship leader at the time. It was really starting to discover his gift and you know, sometimes we would just hang out, hang out in the hot tub or whatever. But other nights we would wander kind of into the den and I, I'll never forget this. I'll never forget Michael grabbing the guitar and he'd start to play. And we're just there and we're kind of just horsing around, you know, playing whatever songs and sort of joking. And, but then all of a sudden, you've been in moments like that, you know. In your personal devotional time or in a worship service or wherever where the room just all of a sudden tilts and you know that somehow you're standing on that threshold between heaven and earth. Like the line has gotten like really blurry in where we are and he would begin to worship and we would start worshiping and all of a sudden the line between heaven and earth would get really thin and, and, and the time, it was just time out of mind. You're not even keeping track anymore of the hours, where have they gone? And I just, I will never forget those times. I will never forget those times of high schoolers, 16 year olds, 17 year olds, prophesying over each other and speaking in new tongues and, and, and praying healing over each other and see, seeing people healed and speaking destiny over each other. And I'll never forget that. I'll never forget as long as I live. I'll never forget laying on the floor of that den and crying my eyes out for God knows how long. I'll never forget laying there for hours and hours as we're worshiping the Lord and thinking to myself, God, I just could, if, if this could go on for the rest of my life, this would be heaven. Surely this is heaven. But those moments marked my life and there was nothing spectacular about it. <laughs> you know, like we're so churchified now that we think that moments like that can only happen in large buildings with smoke machines and lights and sound and all of that stuff. And I'm telling you, it's not, it doesn't require all of that. What it requires is God's people getting together and linking their hearts together. And even though that thing to us, that space to us, that was like our little shanty for the Lord, you know? Our little shack for Jesus. He moved in and moved among us and broke down things in us that needed to be broken down and woke up things in us that needed to be woken up and, and put destiny in our hearts in a way that needed to be put in our hearts. It happened because we were in the presence of God. It happened because we did our parts. We created a space for God and God fulfilled his promise. He moved in with his presence. Guys, every time we gather in this space, 
like this, that's what we're doing. But I've said it and I'll say it until I die. This is not, the church is not like the Jesus club, you know? When we get together and we kind of high five each other about Jesus and it's like so cool, you know, that's not, but this isn't that, you know? We're not living in the memory of a dead God or we're not living in the memory of some icon that we had once upon a time. What the church is, is the church is the temple of the living God. When we gather like this, we're not just kind of getting together to have a sort of religious pep rally where we all go, great, we feel better about Jesus and ourselves. Now, that's not what we're doing. What we're doing is we're trying to link our hearts and our lives together so that God and that promise that the prophets have made that God would fill his people with his presence, that that promise can be fulfilled. And I'm telling you, every time I walk into this building, every time I walk into the assembly of the saints, every time I walk into this community, what I've got in my heart is an expectation that God, somehow you're gonna tilt the room and do it again in our midst. And that's gotta be our hearts. He does it week in and week out, week in and week out, that we assemble like this and he moves in with his presence and he changes people's lives. I remember standing on the front row after a Friday night service a couple years back, Daniel and I had just finished up leading a service and this guy comes up to us and he's got tears in his eyes. And he goes, hey, you don't know me at all, but I just wanted to introduce myself to you. My name is Mark. We said, hi, Mark, nice to meet you. And he said, he said, listen, I've been coming to this church now for three or four weeks, sitting in the service. I sit way in the back over there. He said, and every time I come to this church and every time I sit in the back over there, I don't know what's happening to me, but I just cry through all of the services. Like I weep through all of the services. And of course we said, Daniel and I standing next to each other, we go, great, tell us more. <laughs> he said, I didn't grow up in church and I don't actually really know what any of this is about. I don't even actually truthfully know how I wound up coming to this church. He said, but I've been through an awful time in my life. My, my wife, several years ago, she died. She was diagnosed with breast cancer and she went through several years of treatments and it was this slugfest that went up and down. It seemed like at certain points we were gonna turn the corner and then we didn't turn the corner and all of a sudden I lost her, the love of my life. And the saddest part of that, he said, was that I lost her long before I lost her because the cancer, as the cancer started to spread throughout her body, it actually ate up her mind And so in that last six months to a year that we knew each other, I didn't really know her and she acted irrational and crazy and it was just this long protracted agony. He said, in the middle of all that, I had this successful business that I built with one of my best friends and it made us tons of money and we were doing so well. And while my life was being stolen by this cancer over here, my friend all of a sudden turned on me and betrayed me and I started, I didn't really realize it at the time, but he was stealing the business from me. And so about the time that my wife died, the business also got taken from me. And so two of the most important things in my life at that time were stripped away from me. He said, and I didn't know what to do and I didn't know where to turn. So I just self-medicated and took care of myself. And he said, in the years that have passed since that moment occurred, I have not cried until I came and sat in these services. And now I'm crying, I'm weeping, and I don't know what's happening to me. Can you tell me what is happening to me? And Daniel and I both looked at him and went, brother, that's the Holy Spirit. Run with that. (laughs) You just keep opening your heart to the Lord. You keep stripping back your spirit to the Lord and you keep welcoming this person that we're preaching of every single time we come in here, that we're preaching about Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, you keep welcoming him into your pain and into your agony and into your hurt and into your isolation and into your confusion and into your questions. And what's gonna happen is that he's gonna fill your life with glory. And do you know 
that in the years that have ensued since that conversation with that man, we see him here still on Friday nights. And he keeps coming. Guys, guys. (sighs) What is it that the church is about? Why is it that the church exists? Do we exist just to be the Jesus club or do we exist for some other reason? And I think that we exist by the word of the Lord Jesus himself. I think that we exist for a higher and for a better reason. The Lord Jesus said, this is Acts chapter one and verse four. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with his disciples, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with what? What does it mean to be baptized? It's an immersive experience. When you get baptized, what we do is we put you under the water and we bring you back up again. And Jesus says that John baptized you with water in that way. But in a few days, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take the whole body of the church and I'm gonna dunk it straight in the Holy Spirit and lift it back up again as a resurrected body. Why does the church exist? We exist for this reason, to be that kind of a people, immersed in the Holy Spirit, full of God and radiating his glory in the world. And if we don't exist for that, I don't know what we exist for. Paul wrote it like this, Ephesians chapter two. He said, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. You see, the church takes the place of the physical temple in the New Testament. And in him, Paul says, the whole building, life on life, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord, just like Haggai and Zechariah prophesied, and in him you too are being built together to become what? In which God lives by his spirit. Do you know where the prophecies of Zechariah and Haggai find fulfillment? Right here, right now. And all that we do is we join our lives together and all of the effort that it takes to make a gathering like this happen, all of the behind the scenes planning and the planning center stuff and making sure that the cables are plugged in and that we've got the sound booth back there adequately staffed and that the children's ministry is adequately staffed. And we've got people over there that are handing out communion elements and greeting you and making sure that the floors are swept and clean and all of that stuff. The total cumulative impact of that effort is that we've created a space where the living God comes to dwell in power and in glory. That's the whole purpose of why we do what we do. And so one of the reasons, brothers and sisters, that we throw ourselves into the work of the church is that it prepares a space for God to move in the world. Maybe you do it just because you think that volunteering is a good thing. And it is a good thing. Why I give myself to the church is because I believe that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And I believe that he is pouring out his Holy Spirit. And I believe that when he does that, it changes people's lives. 
And so I will give myself fully to the work of the Lord because I know as certainly as Jesus Christ is raised from the dead that my labor in the Lord and yours too is not in vain. God is moving into planet earth. God is reshaping human lives. Can I get an amen from somebody tonight just so that I know I'm not alone up here? Okay, that's good. Now, there's one thing though. There's an occupational hazard here. For those of us that have been in this story, that we have followed Jesus for any length of time, we've been in the church for any length of time, and that is that you can set your expectations in a certain way that can blind you to the new thing that God is doing in the world. And in this regard, I cannot help but think of that wonderful, amazing, beautiful, and also, I think, challenging moment from the book of Ezra. Ezra, as you know, is one of the men who was sent back to help oversee the work of rebuilding the city and the temple. Along with Nehemiah, Ezra was a scribe, and he's there. And the story of Ezra is the story of getting this temple rebuilt. And the people of God, so this is a little bit earlier than Zechariah and Haggai. And the people of God have laid the foundation to the new temple. And Ezra writes this, that when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, the Lord, the priests in their vestments with their trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals, They took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. And so with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. Can you imagine how happy these people were? Like they had been slaves in another land, exiles, right? They're given the opportunity to come back home and they relay the foundation to the temple. And they're standing there in their hearts, in their minds. They're witnessing the promises of God that they had heard from the lips of Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah coming true right in front of their eyes. And so they begin to lift up worship to the Lord, saying to him, he is good, because they could see his goodness right in front of their eyes. And his love towards Israel endures forever. Like even when our lives were broken to pieces in exile, he didn't go off and leave us. (laughs) He found us. Just like he lifted us up out of Egypt, so he has lifted us up out of Babylon and he's put us back In this land, he is good and his love endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house was laid. Verse 12, but many of the older priests and the Levites and the family heads who had seen the former temple, what did they do? They wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while many others shouted for joy, verse 13, and no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of the weeping because the people made so much noise and this sound, Ezra says, was heard far away. Think about it. The people that had seen God move once upon a time, when they saw this new move of God, it broke their hearts. They couldn't fit it into their categories of how God is supposed to move. And so what was for the young people a cause of celebration was for the old people that had walked with God for a long time. It was a cause of mourning. And that's a cautionary tale for those of us that have been in this for any length of time, that sometimes what happens is God begins to move in a fresh way and we can't see it, we can't receive it, we can't acknowledge it because it doesn't rise to the standard of how it was in the past in the good old days. And I know this because I have experienced this. I've told you I was was born and raised in this non-denominational charismatic church on the edge of town in the 80s. And we had a wild and crazy time. It was amazing. City of 18,000 people. 
church grew to seven or 800 people. God moved in a powerful way. And that was the cradle of my spirituality, watching the signs and the wonders and the miracles and the preaching and the worship services and all the crazy stuff that happened there. And for me, coming out of that experience, that was always my bar. When God moves in a church, it looks like this. This is the picture of a mature church. This is the picture of a mature people. This is a picture of the work of God. And I always carried that picture around with me. And when I started, when I helped some friends plant a church in Denver back in 2009, I had that picture of my church that I grew up in, Believer's Church, Marshfield, Wisconsin. I had that picture of the church in my mind. And so as I'm pastoring this church here, and encouraging them to run after the Lord and to open themselves to the Spirit and encouraging us to be all that God has called us to be. I remember all of those Sundays that I'd be preaching to them, all of those weeks that I'd be working, building plans and emails and all that stuff that you do, all the church administration stuff. In the back of my mind, I always thought, we're doing all of this so that one day we can be a real church. One day we'll really rise up into all that God has for us, but right now we're not that. And so when I would preach at that church, Uh, So often I would draw stories and examples from my church growing up and I didn't realize it at the time, but part of what I was doing was I was setting up a sort of judgment over that church that I was pastoring at the moment, saying to them that unless you rise up into this thing, you're not really a real church, you know, that this isn't really the move of God. This isn't really what the Lord is doing until it rises up to some idea of what Andrew thinks about what it looks like when God moves. Are you tracking with me? Tonight, I'll never forget, I got about five, six years into that church plant and I finished preaching one night, made a Sunday night service and I finished preaching one night and I'm watching people going through the communion line and I'm watching, we had prayer stations set up in the back and people are being prayed for and they're getting healed and filled with the spirit and I'm watching all of these things that God had done over the past five or six years and all of a sudden I was stricken with grief. Here is the work of God was happening right underneath Andrew Arndt's nose. And I'd spent five or six years going, one day when you're really a church, what if Andrew Arndt is happening right now? What if the miracle is taking place in front of you right now? What if the good old days of this church are taking place in front of your face right now and you're too blind to see it because you keep measuring the move of God now by what you saw in the past? It's an occupational hazard of being in this for any length of time. And I remember that was such a perspective tilter for me that when I actually looked at what that church had become, I went, look, it's be- this is beautiful. And in so many ways, Lord Jesus, this is everything that we've ever dreamed of. And in many ways, it's better than the church that I grew up in. And in other ways, there's just no comparison because maybe God never really does the same thing twice. <laughs> maybe God is just creative enough that every one of his works, while they bear the same signature of the divine, also have uniqueness on them. Maybe everything in the kingdom of God is not just apples and oranges, but it's apples and oranges and bananas and pineapples and papayas and mangoes and maybe even a jackfruit or two. I don't know, you know. Maybe he just keeps doing a new thing. And maybe the task in front of us is to keep opening our hearts to it and our eyes to it and our lives to it. And now we're pastoring New Life East on the other side of town over there. And I get people asking me all the time, they go, they go, Andrew, are you trying to do at New Life East a lot of what you did back in Denver? And I say, no. (laughs) Because I know God well enough now, I think, to know that that would be a sort of blasphemy. He did it there. Now we're standing and we're going, what's the new thing that you're doing, God? Would you help us run with the new thing? 
I think that's the spirit that God wants us to have. A spirit that's always receptive to the ways in which God is prone to surprising us. Robert Jensen, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, said that the basic difference between a living God and a dead God is that a living God can surprise you. (laughs) While a dead God, by the way, cannot. Our God is full of surprises. We're going to open our hearts to him. By the way, that's part of the message of Palm Sunday is that will we receive God as God comes to us or will we receive God on our terms? I love the text of Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse one. As they approached Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage in the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her cold by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and will send them right away. Verse four, and this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. By the way, this is Zechariah's prophecy right here. Say to the daughter, to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. See, he's not coming as a conquering warlord. He's coming as a humble king and they're called to receive him on his terms, not theirs. And the disciples went and they did as Jesus had instructed them and they brought the donkey and the colt and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on, verse eight. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and they asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Guys, this is how I want to be. I want to be like this group of people, like these disciples and these crowds who, when they saw Jesus approaching the city, what they did is they laid down cloaks and palm branches and they sang to him and they shouted, blessed is the one who comes in the name. That's how I want to be. And I think that that's how God wants us to be. Humble hearts, open hearts, receptive hearts, that when the kingdom comes marching in and the king comes marching in right in front of us, we can receive him. But here is what we must be aware of. And with this, we'll begin to make the turn into communion. That the same crowds that hailed him as a king and welcomed him on Palm Sunday also called for his crucifixion on Good Friday. And do you know what that makes me aware of? It makes me aware of this, that it would be easy to preach a message like this and go, okay, everybody. So if you really try hard and you really knuckle down and you really pray a lot, you'll be some of the good people who recognize God when he comes. And I recognize in the Palm Sunday and Good Friday story that the message of the gospel is not, if we try harder, we can recognize God when he comes. The message of the gospel is that we don't recognize God when he comes. And still God comes to find us and redeems us. Can we stand up tonight? Would you take your communion elements in your hand? Here it is, guys. Somehow almighty God tucks himself into this moment. Talk about surprises. (laughs) Talk about unspectacular. Who would have predicted this? But we receive it by faith. And what happens when we come to the table of the Lord 
is that that moment that happened so many times in the gospels where the Lord Jesus took mud and made mud out of saliva and dirt and he put it on somebody's eyes and he'd open up their eyes. That's happening to us, that our eyes are being opened. And so tonight, Lord Jesus, we come to you. Would you pray this prayer with me, church? Say it together. We say, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We haven't loved you with our whole hearts. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And so we remember that on the night that he was betrayed, after he had given thanks, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it. Can we break the bread together? And he said, take this all of you and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, hold on to the bread. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, drink from this all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink in remembrance of me. So Lord Jesus, here we are before you tonight. By themselves, this little wafer and this little cup are nothing, but filled with the mystery and the magnitude of your presence, they may become for us a real participation in the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which we are healed and made able to recognize the presence. And so here and now we say, come Lord Jesus. Would you say it with me tonight, church? Say, come Lord Jesus. Say it again, come Lord Jesus. One more time, say, come Lord Jesus. We welcome you, reigning king. Be the king in our midst tonight. You may take the bread. And the cup. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is Lord. Can we give thanks to God tonight for that? Amen and amen. Let's respond with this song of worship.
Jerusalem and into the new creation that goes on and on where every chapter is better than the one before. You are going to make it. Praise be to our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Can we give it up for God being in this place tonight? Even if we have not felt it, He shows up. You don't even need to recognize it. He will cause you to recognize it. One day it will come. And so my friends, before I benedict you, I'm going to remind you that there are cookies to be found for you parents. I don't know. Who is this guy? Why is he talking about cookies again? Uh, for parents and families, um, it is our grand opening. You can find one of these at the top of the stairs. Go veer out to the right. Go up the stairs with a big tree and let our team walk you through the new area. If you're new, we don't talk about cookies every single week, alas. Um, but you are invited to um, meet us out in the lobby. We've got Connect Central out there. We would love to meet meet you, talk to you, and give you a gift. Um, and just as one reminder, don't show up at 6.30 next week. Six and eight. May the Lord bless you and keep you, my brothers and sisters. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May you believe the good news that God is filling up even the smallest shacks that we build and he is going to make them blazing and alive with his presence because of his faithfulness and his goodness in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Go in peace, brothers and sisters.